is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman on the menu for today's show. On the day President Biden visits Pittsburgh to promote his $1 trillion infrastructure bill, a bridge nearly collapsed. Actually, it kind of collapsed, didn't it? It didn't nearly. It collapsed. It just went down. There it went. It, there it goes. There were some minor injuries, but no one was killed. We'll go in-depth into how badly this money is needed to save our aging roads and bridges. More countries in Europe are easing COVID restrictions, and more are talking about it. San Francisco even is loosening its indoor mask requirements, but not here in L.A. County. When should restrictions be eased? And doctors want everyone now to wear N95 and KN95 masks, but there are lots of questions on how to wear them, for how long, and if they can be reused. We've talked about that subvariance of Omicron. Uh, it's here in L.A. County. few cases. We'll look into whether it's spreading across the West. Remember early on in the pandemic when everyone was buying up all the alcohol because you were going to shelter in place? Uh. Uh, sales were great, but now some of the alcohol makers, they're running out of supply. And mm-hmm. uh, the Rams and the 49ers, we will talk the rivalry ahead of the game this weekend. Okay, but let's start with the country's aging infrastructure. With us is Maria Lehman, president-elect of the American Society of Civil Engineers and co-author of the Bridges chapter in the 2021 report card for America's infrastructure. Maria, thanks for being with us. So, uh, I mean, talk about symbolism in a bad way, right? The president goes to Pittsburgh to talk about needing to repair the nation's infrastructure, and lo and behold, a bridge goes down. Uh, that's one of many other bridges that may go down in this country in the future, right? Unless they're repaired. Well, I, you know, when you look at the, the bridge conditions across the country, um, we have a lot of old bridges. Um, 44% of our bridges are over 50 years old and um, they're out in the elements and we have not been investing at levels to be able to keep up with the needs. And so uh, part of the federal system is not just um, looking at how we get more investment, but also we've had to go into a bridge inspection system. So we're looking at the bridges to make sure that we can keep them safe. So things like today don't happen. Um, and how do we address that moving forward? And what, what can we do to, to make sure that uh, there's lessons learned and uh, we do better? Yeah. How did we get to this point where we're not doing so great? Uh, was it just a matter of, you know what, we kicked the can down the road for, for decade after decade because these things were not going to last forever. And a lot of them are 50 years old. Or, or older, I might add. Um, yeah, we've been kicking the can. Um, ASCE started doing its report card in 1998. And uh, we have been in the the DQM cumulative uh, score the whole time until this last cycle um, in 2021, where we came up to a C minus. Nothing to celebrate um, as uh, as a grade, but it's the first time because there's been a lot of investment at the state and local levels. Um, and you, you know you've seen that uh, in in Southern California where there's been a lot of investment. But we, we're missing that federal partnership. And so thankfully, because of Congress and the president, the bill, now federal highway with how they're implementing. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, they talked about how they are putting in huge amounts of money to individual states, California being the biggest um, 
benefactor of that to attract to hit those bridges that are in poor condition. Um, we have a lot of them. Yeah, but, but but let me ask you about the money because you know one trillion dollars sounds like a lot because well it is a lot but but is it enough? Well, when we did a needs assessment, we basically um, figured out that what the needs were over ten years um, for all levels, and then what the funding was, meaning local, state, federal, and private, and the gap over ten years was two point six trillion. All right. So if we do a linear interpretation in five years, that's one point three trillion. Um, and there's five hundred and fifty billion dollars of new money in IIJA. So we're still short money, but it's a good start. And if we're smarter, we use all kinds of innovations, new materials. Uh, maybe that gap gets a little bit smaller, but we're going to need a sustained level at this point for a couple decades to catch up. Maria Lehman, President-elect, the American Society of Civil Engineers. Right now, uh, we talked in the last segment about uh, the president's $1 trillion, right? That's going all over the country to improve infra- infrastructure. And our last guest was saying that that was a good, a good beginning, a yes. trillion dollars. Uh, Cal- every five-year thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, California, we're getting a, a, a mere pittance out of that, $46 billion to go toward infrastructure from that bill. So how badly uh, is this money needed here? Are the bridges and roads in California in good shape? With us is Will Arnold from Caltrans Public Affairs. Will, thanks for being with us. So $46 billion, that's what we're getting roughly, give or take a penny or two. Is that going to be enough to do what needs to be done here? Well, hey, guys, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, you're right. That is a, a big chunk of change uh, by any measure. Um, you know, it's split through a lot of uh, a, a lot of much needed investments. We're talking about, you know, more than half of that $25 billion for federal aid highways, um, $9 billion for public transportation, and critically uh, for the conversation that we're having today, you know, $4.2 billion over the next five years to, to help uh, repair and replace the uh, bridges here in California. This is a real big investment, and it's it's a historical one, and it's one that uh, Californians will really benefit from. Is it that big, though? Because the B is running the story today saying we're actually getting one of the worst deals. So given the size of the state and, you know, the amount of roadway we have and the, probably the work that it needs, um, you know, do you wish we had more? Sure, I suppose. Uh, I, I suppose you know we do we do a job of uh, of ensuring that uh, any of these federal funds that we get uh, get invested into critical infrastructure. Certainly, uh, the need is there, uh, but but Californians also uh, supported um, and ratified SB one in 2017. That's the the Road Repair and Accountability Act. Um, that has has also really helped us uh, move forward in, in improving the condition of our roads and bridges. You know, back when that bill was passed, um, uh, we uh, we had about oh, I think it's forty something percent of state highways in good condition. We're now uh, close to sixty percent of those in, in good condition, and and we've been able to repair eight hundred eighty six bridges if uh, if that number's still accurate eight hundred eighty six bridges over the last four years that's just with s b one funds and it's a hundred plus percent increase compared to what was happening pre s b one when we hadn't seen a uh, an increase in that revenue uh for many many uh, years and so you know we're we are uh, uh, this 
this investment that the that the feds are making you know they announced a, a, a couple of weeks ago uh that um that we'll be getting i believe it's 850 million just for fiscal year 2022 and that's just for bridges and a total of about 4.2 billion over the next five years uh, to fix the state's bridges this is the biggest investment in american history so uh, uh, and it is made possible by the passage of that bipartisan okay. infrastructure. But, but you know, anyone who's ever dealt with a contractor, for example, knows that whatever the estimate is for the repair, it's going to come in a lot more than whatever that estimate is. And then was. how long is it going to take? <laughs> yeah, and right. And, and, and they say, yeah, this will be done in, in a month. Yeah, five months later, they're still working at it. So <laughs> when, when, do we, when do we see the headlines, do you think? You know, something along the lines of $46 billion, not enough, money's run out, and we still don't have the bridges fixed. Well, uh, you know, the bridges are a great metaphor for that. You know, they start, I, I think the old saying is with the Golden Gate Bridge, they start painting it. And when they get to the end of painting it, uh, <laughs> then they have to start over again yeah. on, the, on the other side. And that, 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 that keeps going on forever. So, I mean, there's always, there's always work to be done. You know, California has 50,000 lane miles of pavement. That's not the most in the United States. I think Texas beats us out. But where we are, number one, is in terms of the number of vehicles that travel across those roads, and it's by by a lot. And so, you know, California has so many people, so many people dr- traveling on our roads uh, and traveling in other ways, not just driving. That you know, the need is great, and the need is there. But but we are very fortunate that the that the feds have been able to uh, to step up and make this historic investment. Will Arnold there from Caltrans Public Affairs. Will, thanks. Coming up a little bit later, remember that uh, Omicron relative, BA2, that we talked about? Some of it has been found in L.A. County, not a surprise. And some alcohol manufacturers are now running out of supply, and they blame the pandemic. We'll get into that. Right now, though, the U.K. easing COVID restrictions and mask mandates. Netherlands easing restrictions. Denmark, Finland, they're going to do it. San Francisco ending the indoor mask mandates in places where everybody's vaccinated and in, like, the same group. So offices or, like, if you all go to the same yoga class and you're together at different times. I don't go to a yoga class. Well, they they go up there in San Francisco. Yeah, it they, sounds They do a lot of soul cycle and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, but L.A. County's public health director, Barbara Ferreira, says it's too soon to do any of that here. So when is the right time? Dr. Sabrina Asumu, an infectious disease physician at Boston Medical Center, professor at Boston University School of Medicine, is with us. Doctor, thanks. So when do you think it is right to start uh, easing some of this? I think at least what our health director here is saying is, look, we've still got a lot more cases in some of these other places, so we're going to have to wait a little while longer. But we do know we're going to need off-ramps at some point. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on. So I, you know... The way that I think about this is, you know, what are the metrics that we should be using to decide when we should be um, peeling off some of those public health measures? So number one, looking at cases, how much COVID do we have in the community? Um, Looking at hospital capacity, you know, because remember, I remember in 2020, the big mantra was flattening the curve because we did not want to overwhelm our healthcare system. How's the healthcare system doing? So not just looking at like places like LA and San Francisco, so number one, San Francisco, for the latest numbers that I found, was um, 146 cases per 100,000 people. So what does that mean? Um, what is the goal that we usually have? Um, the CDC says that any time you have greater than 50 cases per 100,000, that's too much COVID in the community. So San Francisco currently has 146 per 100,000. So that's telling me that 
there's a lot of COVID in the community, but we need to take that into context with like what's going on with hospitalization and deaths. So now let's look at LA. The metric that they actually provide is slightly different that I was able to find is the daily, the seven day, day daily case positivity rate. So for that one, the latest one that I saw was 15%. So what does that mean? Usually when there's like more than 5% of COVID in the community, that means there's a lot of COVID going on. So I would say that there's still a lot of COVID in the community. You know, you want to take that again. You want to see what's going on with hospitalization and deaths. But um, I would um, I would agree that at, at this current time, I would probably not start peeling off those measures uh, at this time, just seeing what we're seeing with with cases. Um, hospitalization yeah, I, I, is actually yeah, I was going to say, doctor, that that because that, the numbers just even for San Francisco, I mean, like you were saying, their numbers per 100,000 is still pretty high, even if hospitalizations are going down. Uh, so if I'm catching what you're saying, uh, I, I think you're saying that even San Francisco is being a little premature. Yeah, I would have probably waited to see to get a little more data. I mean, San Francisco, so I live in Boston, and San Francisco has been actually one of the models for the country in terms of just a remarkable response that they've had with COVID-19 and really keeping their cases low, even comparing the cases to what we've ever seen. I mean, we got hit really hard early on in the pandemic. So they've done a really good job. And even if you look at November, they were actually either at or lower than 10 cases per 100,000. So you know, they've really been able to do a remarkable job. I just think that right now there's just a lot of COVID, especially with such a transmissible transmissible um, variant. I would be probably a little more cautious. What about the idea that they're doing it in these cohorts, right? So if it's all of you work in the indoor business and you all know you're vaccinated, then yes, you can lose your masks because then you know your group, right? But if it's not yet for restaurants and, and, and bars and stuff like that, although you're eating and drinking, so we know masks are off, but retail stores, you still got to wear them, but it's your office. You don't. Yeah. You know, you have to take into account that, you know, we've been doing this for such a long time, right? People are tired and we want to see progress. So I think that the, that what San Francisco is doing is sort of showing us that there's a lot at the end of the tunnel. Let's, you know, if we think that this is safe, especially they've had such a high vaccination rate that like they, they're able to do these things um, to sort of make people feel better and also show that we're making progress. So I think that that's a way that they're trying to achieve this. So, um, so yeah. Dr. Sabrina Asumu, infectious disease physician, Boston Medical Center, text from my cousin, no knocking soul cycle. <laughs> so, no, but you were saying, so like, if I were in the Bay Area, if you're in San Francisco, you can go to like a yoga, had I gone to a yoga class, I yeah. could go to one or a without a mask. class or whatever. Yeah, if you're all in the same group, you know. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Since we've had Omicron, the public health officials have been encouraging people to ditch the cloth masks, wear the surgical mask, or better yet, get the N95 or the KN95, because those offer much better protection. But there are lots of questions about uh, the best way to use them and how do you clean them. Uh, with us now is Richard Flagan, professor of chemical engineering and environmental science and engineering at Caltech. Thanks for being with us. So, uh, you know, in theory, you're supposed to be able to go to some pharmacies now and, and pick up like three uh, N95 masks for free. Along with your the, tests. Along right? with the, yes, along with the tests that you can't get. Uh, but why do I have a feeling, Richard, that there are people who are going to get those three N95 masks and think, I think incorrectly, that they could wear each one for, I don't know, like a month? A lot of people 
have been wearing masks for a long time, and uh, I don't I don't think they've been given any any basis for thinking that the masks are originally designed for single use in an occupational setting. Right. So the guidelines we have are for the healthcare workers, right? So let's take that one and then let's apply it maybe to the rest of us. So if I'm working at the hospital and I put on my N95 and that's for the day, that's my mask for the day. But if I'm just using it to go to like the grocery store, you know, real life application, so it's on and off, or I wear it at work sometimes when I go see other people, but not in my office. um, What do I do as like a normal person? Do I try and just add it up? And time-wise, and then I get to a day and I switch it out? Or can you make it last a few days, the week? What do you think? Uh, The numbers that I've seen and the numbers that are consistent with measurements that have been made by one of my postdocs suggest that on the order of 40 hours would be an absolute upper bound on the use of any one mask. So what happens, though? I mean, because I can kind of see people thinking, well, you know, I've used it for two, three, four, five days. Looks good. You know, it's not crumpled and I take good care of it. Uh, You know, it's not like something in the refrigerator that goes bad or does it? Well, as you wear the mask, you're exhaling into it all the time and you're exhaling particles into it. And when you inhale, you're inhaling and particles are being stopped by it it gradually accumulates particles. Those particles will have two effects. One is they make the mask less effective at filtration. The other is they make it harder to breathe through the mask. By the time you get out to something on the order of 40 hours, the pressure drop through the mask has increased dramatically. And that's going to make it harder for you to breathe. So it's going to make it less comfortable. Okay. So we don't like either of those things. So we go for the 40 hours or less. What do we do with them at home? People are always talking about, oh, well, I put them in brown bags because I heard that I was supposed to do that. Can't we just hang them on a door handle and and that's going to be fine? I use a coat rack at home. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, can they be cleaned? Uh, and, And how do you clean them? Unfortunately, these masks are made of very special materials. And if you clean them, you destroy the special properties of the fibers that do the hard work in the mask and make them much less effective. Okay, so no to the cleaning. Um, Realistically, for most people, unless we're really, you know, tracking and going up against the the wearing it too long are we going to be the downfall of our mask because we do keep crumpling it up or the straps go bad or we're shoving it in our pocket? Like if it physically changes to your eyes, then maybe that's also a clue that you should switch it out. If it physically changes to your eyes, that's one thing. If the strap breaks, it's gone. It's not no longer usable. If the strap strap stretches so much that it's no longer holding it tight to your face, it's no longer as useful. It's no longer as protective for you or for those around you. Do people have to be overly concerned about, you know, we keep hearing about counterfeit uh, 95s and counterfeit KN95s. I mean, so long as you get something that you, you know, you order it online and it fits on your face and it's pretty tight uh, and you're only using it one time, does it really make a difference if it's, I don't know, counterfeit or not? 
It makes a huge difference. Okay, why? Because so, some of the masks, the, the modern mask is made with material that has a charge embedded in it. That's what may, has made the N95 possible. That charge embedded in it increases the collection of particles from the air that, that is passing through the mask. Some of the masks that we have tested that look the same as others, and where, where we've seen it most has been in the surgical style masks, um, but that's from a relatively small sample. Some of the masks don't have that character at all. They look the same outside, but you can't tell. The only way you can tell is doing detailed measurements that require expensive equipment. Or figure out that you're buying from like a super reputable source and then you're fine? If you're buying from a super reputable source, you should be fine. Richard Flagan, professor of chemical engineering, environmental science, engineering at uh, Caltech, specializes in aerosols. Yeah, so don't wash those masks. No. Don't like, put it in the... No spin cycle for no. those guys. Well, Los Angeles County Public Health says four cases of that Omicron subvariant BA2 found here. Now it's waiting for answers from researchers about whether it could potentially lead to yet another surge. And if it's here, it's probably in other parts of the West. Uh, Brian Labus is an epidemiologist, professor in UNLV's School of Public Health. Thanks for being here. So I guess this is to be expected, right? We see mutations all the time. And so this is the, the natural progression of any virus when it reaches into a population. We see changes and those new lineages, those new variants start to spread in the population. But, of course, people are now going to start thinking, well, okay, so we, we're getting over, it appears anyway, uh, Omicron, now we're going to have to deal with Omicron BA2, then there's going to be Omicron BA3, and on and on and on. Are they right? Well, it's entirely possible that we're going to see new variants showing up all the time. The question is, does it actually mean anything when those variants occur? We see changes happening on the order of about two mutations per month with coronaviruses, but most of those don't lead to any increased transmission or any change in the disease. So it really comes down to if this actually is relevant in the human population. All we know is that we have new viruses popping up all the time. We have to wait and see if it means anything. Does this one seem relevant yet? People get worried when they see like the, the headlines from Denmark or whatever, and they're saying, oh, it's most of our country here, but then we have all these other countries on the planet just dealing with the regular Omicron and, and not too concerned about this one. They're saying, you know what? It's uh, different, but it's pretty similar, and um, cases are still falling. So, well, And that's what we're looking at right now. We have a slight variant of Omicron. It's, it's different than Delta, and I think that's the big difference is these are very two closely related viruses that are very different than Delta. So no matter which one's spreading, it's going to be a concern for our population. But is that difference really enough to matter all that much? We're seeing it in some parts of the world, but how it spreads in the population is something we're still trying to understand. And it's hard to say that it's really anything to get excited over until we actually see it spreading and doing something different than Omicron. So is this yet another reason why uh, I know we had uh, Dr. Fauci on last week on the show when he was talking about how they're they're trying desperately to, to come up with a, a sort of pan coronavirus vaccine, something that will cover any potential variant. Uh, but is that even really a realistic road to go down for something in the near future? Well, 
we have to look at the areas of the virus that don't change. And if we can target those, that's where we're, our, our vaccine would actually work. So we know that mutations can happen, but if we can come up with something that can handle those mutations, we're going to be better off. So that's why it's it's heading in that direction. It's something we wanted to do with a lot of viruses for a long time, uh, like our flu vaccine. A universal flu vaccine has been something we've wanted for decades. With the new technology have, we have with mRNA vaccines, it's something that we have a better chance of producing and is going to protect us against whatever's spreading now and whatever could spread in the future. Until then, things to watch are what? How much immunity Omicron can give people? And if it gives, you know, cross immunity, because people who had Delta were able to get Omicron. Are we sure that, you know, one way or the other, if you had Omicron, it doesn't mean that you could or could not catch the next one, whatever it is. Well, we don't know. And that's really the challenge here is trying to explain to people that the vaccine does give you protection in general against these viruses. Um, Some people still get infected, though, with the vaccine. The big difference we've noticed, though, is that vaccinated people, no matter what strain they are infected with, tend to have a much less serious disease. They, They have lower rates of hospitalization. They're less likely to die. And so even if the vaccine doesn't prevent you from getting sick, it turns it into a mild illness that you're going to survive. I'm just curious, since you're an epidemiologist, how surprised or maybe you're not surprised are you about the the entire way this uh, pandemic has unfolded for now going on on three years? Are you surprised by this particular virus, the way it transmits, the way it causes disease, the way it affects different kinds of uh, different parts of the body? Uh, unfortunately, no. A lot of this is to be expected with with a virus like this. Early on, it was hard to predict where it was going to go, but as soon as we saw it starting to spread in the population, it was pretty clear this wasn't going to be just a mild illness that went away quickly. It also changes enough that it's challenging for our immune systems and our vaccines to keep up with it. It's something that there's a a new threat kind of all the time, so it's not just like dealing with one individual virus, we have new viruses. The one that's circulating now, Omicron, is very, very different than the initial ones that circulated two years ago in terms of the ability to spread. And so that poses all sorts of new challenges. But we expect that. We're going to keep seeing new variants pop up, and we're going to see those new challenges, and we're going to have the challenge of the immune system basically over time losing some of its uh, protective ability against these viruses. So the antibodies are going to fade, right? But your body should still remember at least most of this with, with the other segments of the immune system that we have. That's also one of the hopes because we, you know, some people may want the shot every year, or maybe that will be recommended. But there's also the school of thought that, uh, you know, unless this thing changes, too much. Maybe the third dose is good for a couple years or a few years. Well, it would be nice if these these doses could last for a long time. But unfortunately, with what we know about coronaviruses, that just hasn't been the case. Typically with uh, coronaviruses, you lose your immunity rather quickly. That's why we get common colds all the time, the types of normal infections that are caused by coronaviruses. And that's just a challenge with these. So uh, it wouldn't be surprising to me to hear that it's going to be an annual shot and we get our, just like a flu shot, we get our annual COVID shot because of that loss of immunity over time. Now you're not left completely unprotected, but we wanna give you the best chance possible for fighting off the virus and having mild symptoms. So that's why you would continue to get uh, booster doses of this. Well, but let me up the ante because there are already people who are only half joking when they say, oh, we're going to end up having to get a, a booster like every six months. Is that even possible? Um, ah, you're hesitating. <laughs> does that does that mean it is? 
Maybe we lost the. Maybe we lost. The deal, right? <laughs> there it is. Oh no, there you are. Okay. <laughs> we, were, uh, we weren't sure if you were thinking. Like, did, we, was yeah, we he didn't... thinking or did the phone die? <laughs> yeah, we didn't know. Uh, you were thinking. So, so, so it's, it's something. It's something potentially we can do on paper, but to do in practice is very, very difficult. Just giving out um, enough doses to our population. That was the phone. Yeah, that was the phone. Oh, wait, okay. You're, you're, what we're hearing is that yeah, you're coming in and out. So either yeah. you're a deep thinker <laughs> or your phone connection. I think the is gist going. of it is yeah, maybe, but it's probably yeah. not practical, and right. they might not even be able to pull I think it that's off what he's getting with at. all of that stuff. Yeah, we'll fill and uh, call us back if we're totally wrong. Um, <laughs> Brian Lavis, epidemiologist professor in UNLV's School of Public Health. That's what we should call the show. Call us back if we're totally wrong. <laughs> You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So people stuck at home during the pandemic, early on especially. The lockdowns didn't have much to do, so they bought a lot of beer and wine and liquor. And sales, those were great for the alcohol makers. They didn't just buy it. They oh, yes. drank it. Exactly. It doesn't just Locked. sit on a shelf. No, no. They, it's not for long. They weren't, like, looking at it. <laughs> they were... So pretty, this bottle. <laughs> I'll never open it. Yeah, now some manufacturers are struggling to meet demand. The largest spirits maker... Uh, Diageo, which produces Crown Royal Whiskey and Don Julio Tequila, is running very low on some of its products. John Morrow Marco is an alcohol industry analyst and managing partner at the consultancy BW166. John, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me. So how much of a problem is this? Is is there really a, a shortage of spirits? It, it, to be honest with you, it varies and for several reasons. And some people are short on product because of higher demand. Um, but other people are short on, say, bottling supplies. So that's delaying things. And then other people uh, with supply chain constraints and for import products, you know, just delays on um, shipping across the oceans. That's a delaying product, even though the product may be there, it can't get to the marketplace. So here we are again with another one of these stories where no matter which sector you prove, it's kind yeah. of a mess right? still. And I guess a lot of people probably also bought a lot over the holidays because that's what we did. And then maybe some of these guys can't restock some of their stuff that got bought up. Yeah, and you know, and, and you, you, know, you mentioned Don Julio uh, tequila with uh, Diageo, and tequila is one of the hottest growing products. And you know, so there's delays and you have a long-term product that you you can take five, six, seven years to produce. And it's hard to actually predict, you know, five, six, seven years ago what the demand is going to be today. And that's also another issue with uh, the beverage alcohol business. It's hard to predict we'd be drinking so much during the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> It was hard to predict we'd have a pandemic. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, what, what about prices, though? I mean, you know, everything is going up in price. What about what about booze? Booze has gone up somewhat, but if you actually look at the consumer price index for beer, wine, and spirits, it hasn't gone up near as much as certain other products, especially um, fresh produce, fresh meat, et cetera. But it, uh, most suppliers are re-looking at their cost base because they are being, they're in, incurring higher costs to produce or for shipping, and they're looking at how they can pass those through the supply chain. Yeah, do we expect a rise soon if this continues? I think you're going to see some rise. The interesting thing with the beverage alcohol category is it's a very fragmented category. So for major brands that people really want to buy that brand, you may see you know some price increases. But other places where people are willing to shop around, you may be able to find an alternative product at the price you used to pay. 
And, and does it also depend, I, I would imagine, I think you were kind of suggesting that earlier, it depends where in the country, maybe even where in the world you are? Absolutely, because the other thing that you contend with, especially if you're in other countries, is currency and how is uh, you know the strength or weakness of the U.S. dollar impacting the price you can sell it for in that other country to ship to the U.S. Tell me about the uh, glass shortage. So some of these places, they have the alcohol to ship out, but they don't have any bottles to put it in? And that varies by manufacturer. Some producers have got ahead of things when they saw certain trends developing even a year ago, and so they ordered glass in advance. Other people kind of kept to their same ordering patterns, and they're finding it's taking longer to get glass. And especially for people, U.S. producers that use imported glass, um, you know, that supply chain's taking longer. So it's a mixed bag. Some people are having delays. Others are fine because they made plans a year ago. Is the pandemic then going to lead to some sort of lasting change in the way the industry produces and, and, and distributes its products, do you think? I think there will be some lasting changes. Uh, you know, we talk just-in-time inventory and, you know, only having things come in just as you need it. I think most producers are going to look at um, ordering and receiving packaging supplies and things earlier so they don't have these problems. I also think, just like other industries, you know, some people that have gone offshore for certain packaging supplies, they may go, go back to onshoring those packaging supplies. But those things don't happen overnight. But over the next three to four years, you actually may see more packaging supplies being procured from uh, domestic producers rather than overseas producers. John Mora Marco, alcohol industry analyst, managing partner, the consultancy BW166. Look what we've come to. Oh, my now I'm worried. <laughs> now you're worried. Now, after two years, now you're worried. <laughs> okay. Well, the Rams are so close to the Super Bowl. All they need to do is win Sunday afternoon against the, we're not going to mention the name. The 49ers. Oh, now you mentioned it. Oh, boo hiss. Yeah. <laughs> what people say in their cars. Uh, not going to be easy because when these teams meet, the Niners have been winning. Uh, but the Rams fans excited and ready. You've been hearing them on the air. Uh, the 49ers fans here in Southern California, they're buying up the tickets. Uh, others are expected to head down from the north. Chris Myers does play-by-play on Fox Sports for the NFL games. Chris, thanks for being with us. So is this, um, you know, in terms of rivalry, a real thing? Is it reignited? Is it just NorCal doesn't like SoCal? Take us through it. <laughs> We, yeah, no, it's reignited. It's a real rivalry. We you know, go back to the Giants-Dodgers, which has been consistent. This took a hit when we didn't have NFL football in Los Angeles for, what, two decades. But you can go back. You can ask a Jackie Slater or um, Jim Everett, who were part of those Ram, L.A. Ram, you know, San Francisco 49er rivalry. So it's kicked in again in the last few years once the NFL returned to Los Angeles and once Sean McVay got, got the Rams contending again in playoffs in a, in a Super Bowl and, and for the Rams' sake, uh, hopefully uh, another one. But a head-to-head, yeah, this is exciting. because And, you know, North, North Cal, South Cal, we, we argue, argue about everything. And I can't think of a state where it's, it's so within one state where there's such a rivalry like that. I mean, I don't see it in Texas or Florida with all my travels, but we argue about food and weather and traffic, about who's, <laughs> who's got it better. Uh, so this is just another way to settle it, right? Dodgers got the best of it in, in baseball. 49ers during the regular season and then the last six head-to-head meetings have had the best of it. So Northern California winning there. But this is this is for the right to go to the Super Bowl, a championship game. 
And, uh, yeah, and I think the Rams are as set up as, as they can be to take that big step forward. It looked like they were going to finish off San Francisco. Had they done had the Rams done that in the final regular season game when they had a 17-0 lead at home where they blew it, uh, the 49ers would have even been in the playoffs and been in the picture. But but they've worked their way as a wild card to be in this position. They, they're, a, they're a tough physical team and Kyle Shanahan is kind of the big brother to Sean McVay they were both assistant coaches in Washington and he's kind of had his number lately he's dialed up the right kinds of things for the 49ers so you know Mike mentioned Chris that uh, 49er fans here in LA are buying up tickets what's wrong with those people well, <laughs> they wanna, well, first of all, How dare the best, they? Yeah. we now have the best NFL stadium in Los Angeles. I say we because I'm, I'm a resident on Southern California, and it used to be the Cowboys stadium was the standard, and they've used that. To, so SoFi is, is such a terrific building to see a game in, I mean, for, for a fan of any of any team. But, yeah, I just read something. I was trying to follow this because I know they were upset last time about 49er fans either outnumbering or at least being louder in that final regular right. season game here in, in L.A. And I think I read something that, that some ticket company said that more than 60% have gone to 49er fans, at least sold, how they show up, who does what, uh, how much noise they make. But, look, if you're a Rams fan, it's not about the numbers. Uh, if this is your home team, just just make sure you're louder uh, when the 49ers are on offense, <laughs> just like the 49er fans are going to do when, when Matthew Stafford's on offense, no yeah. matter how many show up. And for the Rams, just try not to get too caught up in the composition of the crowd because the comments have been made before last time, too. It was like 60-40, and the Niners fans were loud, as they are, and then you know you have to you have to try and block that out. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, Matthew Stafford is a, a difference maker. He had his ups and downs during the year. Obviously, he's faced the 49ers a couple of times. But the, the performance he had against Tampa Bay, which, by the way, the Bucks last year, as good as Brady was, they really took off, and I make this point, in the postseason as a wild card team. Their defense played at a different level, takeaways, big plays. And I'm seeing that with this Ram defense. So obviously you have Stafford to, to make the big plays when you need it and protect the football. But the, the Aaron Donald, Von Miller, and, and Jalen Ramsey, I think, has to come up big because they've got guys like Kittle and Debo Samuel that somebody has to kind of just keep in check. But the way the Ram defense is playing, and they really dominated Brady and then the Bucks until the Rams fumbled things away in that second half of the, the playoff game. I, I think that's the difference. 49ers have a very good defense, and, and obviously offensively, they're, you know people pick on their quarterback, but they're a run team. They're a power run team, and they've been successful with that. So forgive me, Chris, I'm going to put you on, on the spot. Uh, this is the show that uh, two years ago asked experts on the pandemic how long it was going to last, and that didn't go over that well. <laughs> so, so what do you think is going to happen on Sunday? Yeah, well, you know, I'm not really in the prediction business as a play-by-play guy, but having covered both of these teams during the year and through the course of, uh, of a few seasons, uh, going back to even remembering that that Ram 49er last championship meeting, which is up in the Bay Area, uh, when the 49er defense uh, kind of took over, it was Flipper Anderson and Jim Everett. The 49ers dominated that. That was back on the Montana Steve Young day. So uh, this one, I, I I just think the Rams have come too far. They they went all in, and I think it was a lesson to them uh, the way that that first or that 49er game went in the regular season, and then also the the Buccaneer game. Even though the offense turned it over, the the defense let up a little bit. Jalen Ramsey got burned on the deep ball by by Mike Evans. A quick touchdown. You can't give up quick scores, but in this what I the challenge is the physical part of, of the 49ers Trent Williams is giant hulking lineman who just powers over defensive linemen so I, I think the Rams can win I don't know if it'll be as high scoring as people would think because the 49ers want to keep it low level but I, I think the Rams can win a 23-20 kind of game that's that's the way I would see it or 24-21 something 
something in that window. And and the defense will will be. They're both defense will play well. And then Stafford, uh, the difference for the Rams. Now Van Jefferson may not play. That that hurts because you know Robert Woods went out early and they missed that that deep threat. But Cooper Cup can do a lot of things, including running the football out of his receiver position. And and he's the go-to guy in the clutch as we saw against the Bucks. Well, you're just gonna have to grind, right? I mean, the coaches have been talking. I think it was Shanahan was saying, you know, we're out of tricks. We can't really surprise anybody anymore so you just have to go out there and be really really good and 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 beat them and try and get a lead on them early and then just just hold on that's the right word grind that's how the 49ers they 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 had to grind out that win up at green bay their special teams and i think the Rams special teams have come around the Rams kicking game matt gay obviously the game winner he fell short earlier but to me uh, the rams have the better kicker long distance robbie gold a clutch kicker who has not missed in the postseason in his entire career he's 19 out of 19 uh he came through for the 49ers but he doesn't have the leg from long distance from from let's say beyond 50 it's a little bit risky so that could be the difference but i don't think there's an advantage on on special teams i think the advantage for the rams is stafford over garoppolo and i'm a garoppolo fan but he's not 100 percent his his thumb his shoulder uh they they've drafted a guy they traded up to replace garoppolo Garoppolo, uh, that rookie is in waiting, not quite ready. So it's a, and Jimmy G's contract has one more year to go. So he's he's battling, and he's well respected by his teammates. But he's not the kind of passer, uh, even though he's a gamer. He's not the kind of passer that Matthew Stafford is. Chris Myers, play by play on Fox Sports for the NFL games. Chris, thanks. Whole state's watching football on Sunday. The Rams against uh, that other, <laughs> those, those other guys from yeah. the from the north. All right, that's in depth for the week. We will see you on Monday.